welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Here we are back with another Edgar Allan Poe episode. This one has one well-known story and one I'm betting most of you have never read before. Let's start with the one that is well-known, well-loved, and well-memed these days. Originally published in the November 1846 issue of Godey's Ladies Book, this is The Cask of Amontillado. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. But the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my way, into smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my to smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires in painting and gemmery. Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk one evening, during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado. And I have my doubts. How, said he, Amontillado, a pipe? Impossible. And in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, I replied. 
And I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado. And I must satisfy them. Amontillado! As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucreci. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me... Lucreci cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet, some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you to have an engagement. Lucreci... I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you have been imposed upon. And as for Lucreci, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, and putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a rocolaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at my home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together upon the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, he said, is farther on, said I. But observe the white webwork which gleams from these cabin walls. He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Nighter? He asked at length. Nighter, I replied. How long have you had that cough? <laughs> my poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucrece. Enough, he said. The cough's a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied, and indeed I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. A drought of this medic will defend us from the dams. Here, 
I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us. And I to your long life. He again took my arm and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forgot your arms. A huge human foot door in a field of azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune necessit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medic. We had passed through the long walls of piled skeletons, with casks and puncheons intermingling, into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The niter, I said. See, it increases, it hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough, it is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another drought of the medic. I broke and reached him a flagon of de grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards <laughs> with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement. A grotesque one. You just not comprehend? He said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You're not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign. A sign, he said. It is this. I answered, producing from beneath the folds of my rocolaire a trowel. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. <clears throat> but let us proceed to the Amatiata. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again. Arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. 
At the most remote end of the crypt, there appeared another, less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains. Piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior crypt, or recess in depth of about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination, the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucrece, he is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend. As he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In niche, and finding an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain. From the other, a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nighter. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No, then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones, of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry, when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low, moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tear and the third 
and forth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I seized my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished, without interruption, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused and, holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams burst suddenly from the throat of the chained form. Seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment, I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess. But the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now, there came from out of the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke. Indeed, an excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado. The Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But it is it not getting late? Will they not be awaiting us at the palazzo? Lady Fortunato and the rest? Must this be gone? Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor. Yes, I said. For the love of God. But to these words, I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato? No answer. I called again. Fortunato! 
No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick. It was the dampness of the catacombs that made it so. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the last half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. Now I have for you the lesser known Poe tale. At least this one doesn't make it in as many top 10 lists of Poe's work. I have a feeling it's because people don't get to the end. It's the narrator likes to talk and all the bad stuff's at the very end. So just a warning, this is a very slow burn, but I think, and I am not alone in this, I've read that other scholars, other scholars, like I'm a scholar, scholars think this, it is absolutely the most gruesome and violent ending of all of his works, which is saying a lot for Poe. In fact, when it was first published in Southern Literary Messenger in March 1835, the publication received so many angry letters that they removed four paragraphs from the story to make it a little less gruesome. Honestly, without the four paragraphs, it's still horrifying. (laughs) Now I have to admit, this was my bad. The copy of this story I read was unfortunately the edited one. I profusely apologize, but I didn't realize it until the whole episode or the story itself was fully edited with music, sound effects, everything. And... I just didn't know those four paragraphs had been missing. And after the story, for my outro, I will read you those four missing paragraphs and explain why the publisher was so adamant about them being removed. In fact, like, so adamant that they are still removed from several websites as well as the copy of Tales of Edgar Allan Poe that I have from 1974. Uh, goes to show you that people have been speaking to the manager and ruining the fun for everyone for centuries now. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. Here is Bernice. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of Earth is multiform, overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. Its hues are as various as the hues of that arch, as distinct, too, yet as intimately blended. Overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. How is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness from the covenant of peace a simile of sorrow but as in ethics 
evil is a consequence of good. So, in fact, out of joy is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies which are have their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. My baptismal name is Aegeus, that of my family I will not mention. Yet there are no towers in the land more time-honored than my gloomy, gray, hereditary halls. Our line has been called a race of visionaries, and in many striking particulars, in the character of the family mansion, in the frescoes of the chief saloon, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the chiseling of some buttresses in the armory, but more especially in the gallery of antique paintings, in the fashion of the library chamber, and lastly, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents, there is more than sufficient evidence to warrant the belief. The recollections of my earliest years are connected with that chamber and with its volumes, of which latter I will say no more. Here died my mother. Herein was I born. But it is mere idleness to say that I had not lived before, that the soul has no previous existence. You deny it? Let us not argue the matter. Convince myself, I seek not to convince. There is, however, a remembrance of aerial forms, of spiritual and meaning eyes, of sounds, musical yet sad, a remembrance which will not be excluded, a memory like a shadow, vague, variable, indefinite, unsteady, and like a shadow, too, in the impossibility of my getting rid of it while the sunlight of my reason shall exist. In that chamber I was born, thus awaking from the long night of what seemed but was not non-entity at once in the very regions of fairyland into a palace of imagination into the wild dominions of monastic thought and erudition it is not singular that I gazed around me with a startled and ardent eye that I loitered away my boyhood in books and dissipated my youth in reverie but it is singular that as years rolled away and the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my fathers. It is wonderful what stagnation there fell upon the springs of my life. Wonderful how total an inversion took place in the character of my commonest thought. The realities of the world affected me as visions, and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the land of dreams became, in turn, not the material of my everyday existence, but in very deed that existence utterly and solely in itself. Bernice and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my paternal halls. Yet, 
differently we grew. I, ill of health and buried in gloom. She, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy. Hers, the ramble on the hillside. Mine, the studies of the cloister. I lived within my own heart, an addicted body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation. She, roaming carelessly through life with no thought of the shadows in her path or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours, Bernice. I call upon her name, Bernice, and from the gray ruins of memory a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, oh, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. Gorgeous, yet fantastic beauty. Oh, sylph amid the shrubberies of Arnheim. Oh, naiad among its fountains. And then, then, all is mystery and terror. A tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell like the simoon upon her frame. And even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, pervading her mind, her habits, and her character. And, in a manner, the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went. And the victim. Where was she? I knew her not. Or knew her no longer. As Bernice. Among the numerous train of maladies. Superinduced by that fatal and primary one. Which affected a revolution of so horrible a kind in the moral and physical being of my cousin. May she be mentioned as the most distressing and obstinate in its nature, a species of epilepsy not unfrequently terminating in trance itself, trance very nearly resembling positive dissolution, and from which her manner of recovery was, in most instances, startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease for I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation. My own disease then grew rapidly upon me and assumed, finally, a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form, hourly and momently gaining vigor, and at length obtaining over me the most incomprehensible ascendancy. This monomania, if I must so term it, consisted in a morbid irritability of those properties of the mind in metaphysical science, termed the attentive. It is more than probable that I am not understood, but I fear, indeed, that it is in no manner possible to convey to the mind of the merely general reader an adequate idea of that nervous, intensity of interest with which, in my case, the powers of meditation, 
not to speak technically, busied and buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long, unwearied hours with my attention, riveted to some frivolous device on the margin or in the topography of a book, to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day in a quaint shadow, falling aslant upon the tapestry or upon the door, to lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of a lamp or the embers of a fire, to dream away whole days over the perfume of a flower, to repeat monotonously some common word until the sound, by dint of frequent repetition, cease to convey any idea whatever to the mind, to lose all sense of motion or physical existence by means of absolute bodily quiescence long and obstinately preserved in. Such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by a condition of the mental faculties, not indeed altogether unparalleled, but certainly bidding defiance to anything like analysis or explanation. Yet, let me not be misapprehended. The undue, earnest, and morbid attention thus excited by objects in their own nature, frivolous, must not be confounded in character with that ruminating propensity common to all mankind, and more especially indulged in by persons of ardent imagination. It was not even, as might be at first supposed, an extreme condition or exaggeration of such propensity, but primarily an essentially distinct and different in the one instance, the dreamer or enthusiast being interested by an object, usually not frivolous, imperceptibly loses sight of this object in the wilderness of deductions and suggestions issuing therefrom until, at conclusion of a daydream, often replete with luxury, he finds the incitamentum or first cause of his musings entirely vanished and forgotten. In my case, the primary object was invariably frivolous, although assuming, through the medium of which my distempered vision, a refracted and unreal importance. Few deductions, if any, were made, and those few pertinaciously returning in upon the original object as a center. The meditations were never pleasurable, and at the termination of the reverie, the first cause, so far from being out of sight, had attained that supernaturally exaggerated interest which was the prevailing feature of the disease. In a word, the powers of mind, more particularly exercised, were, with me, as I have said before, the attentive, and are, with the daydreamer, the speculative, my books at this epoch, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, partook, it will be perceived largely, in their imaginative and inconsequential nature of the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. I will remember, among others, the treatise of the noble Italian Coleus Secundus Curio de Aplitudine, Bitti Regni de 
St. Austin's great work, The City of God, and Tertullian, De Carne Christi, in which the paradoxical sentence, Mortuus est de filius, credible est chia ineptum, est et sepultus, resurrects it, certum est chia impossibile est, occupied my undivided time for many weeks of laborious and fruitless investigation. Thus it will appear that, shaken from its balance and only by trivial things, my reason bore resemblance to that ocean crag spoken of by Ptolemy Hephaestion, which steadily resisting the attacks of human violence and the fiercer fury of the waters and the winds, trembled only to the touch of the flower called asphodel, and although to a careless thinker, it might appear a matter beyond doubt that the alteration produced by her unhappy malady in the moral condition of Bernice would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and abnormal meditation whose nature I had been at some trouble in explaining, yet such was not in any degree the case. In the lucid intervals of my affirmity, her calamity indeed gave me pain, and taking deeply to the heart that total wreck of her fair and gentle life, I did not fault to ponder frequently and bitterly upon the wander-working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease, and were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances to the ordinary mass of mankind. True to its own character, my disorder reveled in the less important but more startling changes wrought in the physical frame of Bernice, in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. Through the gray of early morning, among the trellised shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her, not as the living and breathing Bernice, but as the Bernice of a dream, not as a being of the earth, earthy, but as the abstraction of such a being, not as a thing to admire, but to analyze, not as an object to love, but as the theme of the most abstruse, although desultory speculation, and now, now, as I shuddered in her presence and grew pale at her approach, yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition. I called to mind that she had loved me long, and in an evil moment, I spoke to her of marriage, and at length the period of our nuptials was approaching, when, upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, one of the most unseasonably warm calm and misty days, which are the nurse of this 
beautiful, halcyon. I sat and sat as I thought, alone, in the inner apartment of the library, but uplifting my eyes, I saw that Bernice stood before me. For as love, during the winter season, gives twice seven days of warmth, men have called this clement and temperate time, the nurse of the beautiful Halcyon, Simonides. Was it my own excited imagination, or the misty influence of the atmosphere, or the uncertain twilight of the chamber, or the grey draperies which fell around her figure, that caused in it so vacillating and indistinct an outline. I could not tell. She spoke no word. I, not for worlds, could I have uttered a symbol. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul, and sinking back upon the chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive, and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon the face. The forehead was high and very pale and singularly placid, and the once jetty hair fell partially over it, and overshadowed the hollow temples with their innumerable ringlets, now of a vivid yellow, and jarring discordantly in their fantastic character with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lusterless, and seemingly pupilless and I shrank involuntarily from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and, in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed Bernice disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or that, having done so, I had died... The shutting of a door disturbed me, and, looking up, I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber. But from the disordered chamber of my brain, had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away. The white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth, not a speck on their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not an indenture in their edges, but what that period of her smile had sufficed to brand in upon my memory. I saw them now, even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth! The teeth! They were here, and there, and everywhere, and visibly and palpably before me, long and narrow and excessively white, with the pale lips writhing about them, as in the very moment of their first terrible development. Then came the full fury of my monomania. As I struggled in vain against its strange and irresistible influence, 
In the multiplied objects of the external world, I had no thoughts but for the teeth. For these I longed with frenzied desire. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone, were present to the mental eye. And they, in their sole individuality, became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light. I turned them in every attitude. I surveyed their characteristics. I dwelt upon their peculiarities. I pondered upon their confirmation. I mused upon the alteration in their nature. I shuddered as I assigned to them in imagination a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression. Of Mademoiselle Sal, it has been well said, que tu sais pas étayant des sentiments, and of Bernice, I more seriously believed que tu sais dans étayant des idis, des idis. Ah, here was the idiotic thought that destroyed me. Des idis. Ah, therefore it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt that their possession could alone ever restore me to peace in giving me back to reason. As the evening closed in upon me, thus and then the darkness came and tarried and went, and the day again dawned, and the mists of a second night were now gathering around, and still I sat motionless, in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy as, with the most vivid, hideous distinctness, it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length there broke in upon my dreams a cry as of horror and dismay, and thereunto, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices, intermingled with many low moanings of sorrow or of pain. I arose from my seat, and throwing open one of the doors of the library, saw standing out in the antechamber a servant maiden, all in tears, who told me that Bernice was no more. She had been seized with epilepsy in the early morning, and now, at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. I found myself sitting in the library, and again, sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight. And I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Bernice had been interred. But of that dreary period which intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite comprehension. Yet its memory was replete with horror. Horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, 
written over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I strive to decipher them, but in vain. While ever and anon, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? I asked myself the question aloud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me, What What was was it? it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of the family physician. But how came it there, upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, and to a sentence underscored therein. The words were the singular but simple ones of the poet, Eben Zayat. My companion said to me, If I would visit the grave of my friend, I might somewhat alleviate my worries. Why then, as I perused them, did the hairs of my head erect themselves on end? and the blood of my body become congealed within my veins. There came a light tap at the library door, and pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound. And then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to garments. They were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not, and he took me by the hand. It was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it. But I could not force it to open. And in my tremor, it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces. And from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with thirty-two small, white, and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. Now that you know the gruesome tale of Bernice, let me read to you the four missing paragraphs 
So this starts as soon as our <laughs> our hero, our narrator, finds out that Bernice has passed. Here we go. With a heart full of grief, yet reluctantly and oppressed with awe, I made my way to the bedchamber of the departed. The room was large and very dark, and at every step with its gloomy precincts, I encountered the paraphernalia of the grave. The coffin, so a menial told me, lay surrounded by the curtains of yonder bed, and in that coffin, he whisperingly assured me, was all that remained of Bernice. Who was it, asked me, would I not look upon the corpse? I had seen the lips of no one move, yet the question had been demanded, and the echo of the syllables still lingered in the room. It was impossible to refuse, and with a sense of suffocation, I dragged myself to the side of the bed. Gently, I uplifted the sable draperies of the curtains. As I let them fall, they descended upon my shoulders, and shutting me thus out from the living, enclosed me in the strictest communion with the deceased. The very atmosphere was redolent of death. The peculiar smell of the coffin sickened me, and I fancied a deleterious odor was already exhaling from the body. I would have given worlds to escape, to fly from the pernicious influence of mortality, to breathe once again the pure air of the eternal heavens. But I had no longer the power to move. My knees tottered beneath me, and I remained rooted to the spot, and gazing upon the frightful length of the rigid body as it lay outstretched in the dark coffin without a lid. God of heaven, is it possible? Is it my brain that reels? Or was it indeed the finger of the enshrouded dead that stirred in the white cerement that bound it? Frozen with unutterable awe, I slowly raised my eyes to the countenance of the corpse. There had been a band around the jaws, but, I know not how, it was broken asunder. The livid lips were wreathed in a species of smile, and through the enveloping gloom, once again, there glared upon me in too palpable reality the white and glistening and ghastly teeth of Bernice. I sprang convulsively from the bed, and uttering no word, rushed forth a maniac from that apartment of triple horror and mystery and death. Now, let me tell you why this was. these four paragraphs were deleted. By now, you are very aware that our narrator um, went to the grave of his wife, who, hint, cousin, um, Poe knew a lot about that, uh, dug her up, basically, um, disturbed her, her, her grave, found out she was still alive because he was trying to remove her teeth, which he had become fixated on. And throughout the story, you remember, he is very easily fixated on things and teeth, the, her teeth were what he, were his newest obsession, removes her teeth as she's actively fighting him off because the menial, he points out that he has wounds on his hand from her fingernails. So the reason these were removed is because they thought it would be a softer blow to think that the narrator had gone so insane that even though he gruesomely removed this very much alive woman's teeth, maybe he was so crazy he didn't realize she was alive. 
and (laughs) he thought she had previously been dead. But these four paragraphs prove in the middle, not the middle, near the end of the story, as soon as we find out Bernie's his past, um, it proves that the narrator knew the entire time that she was not dead and didn't try to stop her burial, let her be buried alive, and then went and dug her up and ripped her teeth out whilst she was still alive. Uh, like I said, this is to me one of the most, when, if you really sit and think about it, horrifying, horrifying story, like awful all around. Um, really good. Slow burn. I can see why it's not on a lot of lists. It's not as big of a, you know, the telltale heart is he kills the guy pretty near the beginning. The Raven rhymes, the cask of Amontillado, you know, the cask of Amontillado was a slow burn too. I think, I think that just, it's got a more (laughs) weirdly, even though that's a very dark ending, it's almost a more like acceptable ending because there's no actual like (laughs) teeth being ripped out from a buried live woman. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you to my author. I always thank my authors. Thank you, Mr. Poe. Once again, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. This was a little bit off the beaten path. I think, um, not because I'm not that Edgar Allan Poe is like (laughs) so quirky. It's just that, uh, you know, like I said, the Bernice thing, I missed the four paragraphs, which was interesting. I think that was, I'm, I'm almost happy I missed them because I'm glad that I could go back and read them after as sort of a, I don't know, it kind of brought it all together for me and gave me, it gave the story a lot of different dimensions. Um, Oh, by the way, I didn't mention this, I don't think earlier, but Poe was absolutely very pissed that they took out those four paragraphs as he should have been. Um, All right. I am going to go. I'm so excited. Oh, one reason I didn't say this up top. One reason I was inspired to do this episode was because tomorrow I'm going to be attending, or today, if you're listening, you're probably listening to this on a Friday, because, well, it's already 11.22 p.m., so it's probably Friday where you are right now. Um, I'm going to a concert, a Chopin concert, in a church that's lit by candlelight, and I am so stoked. Just a person, a piano, Chopin, candlelight, and a church. It just feels like it's going to be something that it's like, I'm going to see it the way that people used to see it, you know, by candlelight, because there was no electricity. And in this just, you know, the acoustics of churches is just gorgeous. It's down, it's, it, um, it's, um, oh my God, it's on Wilshire (laughs) here in LA. I wanted to say downtown. It's not downtown. It's on Wilshire. Um, they do a lot of concerts like that. So if you're in LA, you should check it out. Uh, I I got the tickets on Eventbrite. I don't remember what the whole concert series is called, but they do Vivaldi. Um, I, I forgot which other composers they do, but Chopin and Vivaldi were two of them. Definitely. I wanted to do Vivaldi, but it was on like a Tuesday and it's late. It's at like, they have a six o'clock showing and a nine o'clock showing. Um, wow. Sorry. This was very, very, um, local to LA talk. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited. And I featured some of Chopin's work in this week's episode. And it just put me in a kind of old timey mood. And I was like, Chopin would go beautifully with Edgar Allan Poe. And he did. And it did. And I'm in a mood. So here we go. I think, oh, 
this, uh, I don't know how many of you got to the end of this episode. Like I said, I realize Bernice is kind of a, a trudge to get through. You know, there's some beautiful stories that are just a little bit of a trudge to get through. They really are. I understand it. I am a reader of classical literature. Um, that is not to be snobby. I'm just, it, I promise, it's just that I, I like old dusty things. You guys all know that. Um, and some of it is a trudge. It really is. And then some of it is surprisingly easy to get through. Like, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I had put off reading that for a long time. I don't know why I read it probably a few months ago, like six months ago, read it all in one night. It's like 140 pages, read it all in one night. It was great. It's become one of my favorite books. Um, but then there are like, um, I don't know, like Frankenstein is a little bit of a trudge mostly because the narrator is just, oh my God, Victor Frankenstein is just the world's first emo sad boy in literature. And oh my God, you just, you don't feel bad for him. You kind of do. I guess you do, but like, not really, not really. Um, (laughs) this has been literature corner, um, Gothic literature corner. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go, I think tomorrow I'm going to make, not only am I going to bake biscuits because I want biscuits and gravy for breakfast, but I'm also going to make a Texas sheet cake. I don't know. I'm feeling uh, down home Southern right now. My husband's rubbing off on me. Um, I'm not from the South. I'm also not from Arizona. If you're listening, Um, (laughs) that's an inside joke. Don't worry about it. All right. I'm going to go. Oh, go, go join all the stuff. Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. I started my, actually I didn't, uh, my friends, Karen and Rosemary started and Jeremy sort of helped. Um, the mods in the Facebook group started scare you to cook (laughs) and it's a separate group for scare you to sleep fans. And it's all recipes. You can share your recipes. You can ask questions about how to cook this or that, uh, tip as for tips, you can give tips, share stuff that you've done and been like, Hey, this is a cool way that I smoked a pig or fried some tofu. And like, just, or just look at this beautiful cake I made. It's, it was from a box, but that's fine. It's so pretty. And I, it tasted good, whatever. I'm not, I, I, I just love food and I love you. And so go share your food. It's called scary to cook. There's a, um, I put a link in the Facebook group. Uh, check it out. I hope to see you there. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to go. <laughs> I love you all. I hope you're all drinking water. It's getting hot outside. You all better be drinking water because it's getting hot outside. And if you're all walking around dehydrated, I'm going to be very disappointed in all of you. And I'm just going to say that right now. Just, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. So go get some sleep and sweet dreams. <laughs>